0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Core Consult Rx podcast. Cole and I are back at it with another accredited episode for continuing education. Yes. Just us, though. Just us. No AJ today. Unfortunately, AJ had family obligations. More important so We'll things. let it slide. I Maybe. guess our executive producer. We might demote him. We'll see. <laughs> just he's producer now. Just producer. Or no executive. Or de-executive. <laughs> he's, de- he's been de-executivized. That's nice. a new word. I like that. So, uh, Cole, what are we chatting about today?
1: Yeah, so we've talked about um, this a little bit in the past, but we're going to take a little bit of a different swing on it today. Um, Crohn's disease. So we've talked about IBD, which is Crohn's, and ulcerative colitis, but we're going to focus on Crohn's today. Uh, There's a new guideline, reasonably new, in the last year at least, that we'll hit a couple points on that. Um, And then we're going to kind of talk a little bit about um, colon cancer screening, increased risk of colon cancer with Crohn's disease and some updates to that over the last few years too. So lots of good stuff.
0: Yep. So you mentioned IBD, inflammatory uh, bowel disease, um, can be both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. But when we 're kind of thinking about some of the the differences to kind of distinguish you know those we we typically think of ulcerative colitis as being more um, confined to the the rectum and colon um, specifically, whereas Crohn 's disease can kind of happen along the entire uh, g i tract so transmural inflammation and uh, it, it makes it potentially um, a little bit harder to treat because it takes away some of our, our older treatment options and things like that, which we'll, we'll discuss. But, uh, I think we did ulcerative colitis last year. So if you are interested in more in depth detail about that, check that episode out. But, um, yeah, since we're going to have some new guidelines and all that, we'll, we'll, focus on Crohn's disease specifically
1: yes we will focus on Crohn's but there's a lot of overlap with them as far as the etiology and even a little bit of the pathophysiology goes Um, and it's hard to talk about the treatments without um, at least touching on a couple things related to UC so you'll hear us mention a couple things but the focus is on Crohn's Um, for both of them it's kind of a there's complex reasons why it happens um, uh, and various reasons why it happens so it can be immunologic infectious um, there's genetic components Um, With immunology, um, it's frequently associated with being autoimmune, um, an inappropriate T-cell response to the intestinal flora, overproduction of tumor necrosis factor, overexpression of interferons, um, so inflammatory mediators that we're familiar with. Um, With infection, um, it can be um, alterations to the normal flora, so bacterial overgrowth, or um, bacteria produce toxins, that sort of thing. And there's definitely um, high um, uh, genetic um, associations. So a lot of twin um, concordance rates, um, several genetic biomarkers that have been identified, so uh, definitely can be genetic as well.
0: And even environmental factors. So... Certain things like our Western diet, um, it puts us, it, patients more at risk for developing IBD in general. Um, and so thinking about things like you know diets that are low in fiber, uh, high in simple sugars, um, additives, refined foods, things like that, uh, all potentially can add to the – really it's, it's the overall adding of the inflammation properties. Uh, nicotine, um, for example, and this is where uh, one – first things I think of as far as the differences between um, some of the ways that social factors can affect um, inflammatory bowel disease, whether it's ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, because nicotine actually worsens Crohn's disease, which we always think of cigarettes as being uh, associated with negative outcomes, but it is actually protective in ulcerative colitis. That's one big difference. Um, Not that we're (laughs) suggesting to tell your ulcerative colitis colitis patients to go start smoking, um, but uh, it does potentially... Um, run the risk of them losing kind of control of their symptoms or taking them out of remission in that state. But luckily with Crohn's, we can stay on our normal train of thought where we say uh, definitely quit smoking if possible, um, and then certain uh, medications can flare up uh, a Crohn's, uh, you know, Cro- Crohn's flare with so things like NSAIDs actually can um, trigger a flare up, and then certain medications that have um, like specifically diarrhea as an adverse effect. We, obviously, in some cases, we can't ignore them, um, depending on the comorbidity the patient has, but try to limit medications that have GI distress because uh, we don't want to add any anything else more to that. Right. Um, psychological things to kind of consider. Uh, the, the mental health changes um, – seem to be associated with uh you know remission versus in, in flares so things like stress anxiety um, depression the the data seems to be more associated with ulcerative colitis um, when it comes to uh, psychological changes that cause a flare but crohn's disease could be a potential as well and so basically what we're getting at multifaceted disease that get lots of different things that can kind of go into the etiology um, like cole was saying so uh, it's definitely not some sort of a simple um Diagnosis or simple disease process. No, no,
1: it's not uh, extremely clear what the issue might be that's causing it. So um, they're delineated: ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Um, and the primary, primary easy way to delineate them is um, the location of where they happen, like Mike had mentioned before, and also kind of what it looks like from a, um, um, if you're literally looking at a perspective. So he mentioned that the UC is generally um, confined to the rectum and the colon. There's no small intestine transmural involvement. Whereas with Crohn's, it's transmural, also in the small intestine. It can be anywhere from the mouth to the anus. Um, and then UC has the characteristic um, look, and it's, it's generally described as like crypt abscesses. Um, with Crohn's disease, um, we often see uh, fistulas, granulomas, um, and it's more of a cobblestone appearance versus uh, UC, no crypt abscesses. Um, It often involves the terminal ileum in the small intestine, um, and the clinical presentations can be pretty similar, but uh, chronic diarrhea, uh, it can have some blood, but it's not grossly bloody, Um, abdominal pain, um, specifically with tenderness in the right lower quadrant, um, and it can be, um, if it's relieved by defecation, that can be a sign as well. Uh, Patients can also have fever, weight loss um, for obvious reasons, and also malabsorption uh, of food and other things.
0: Yeah, and I think that's especially when it comes to kind of differentiating between the two. The the they have very specific characteristics that I think make it. Um, you know, if you can kind of keep in mind, like like uh, Cole was mentioning, you know, crypt abscesses with ulcerative colitis versus the cobblestone appearance with Crohn's. Like some of those 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 key kind of phrases can help kind of differentiate. If you're take if you're a student, it's kind of like thinking about it from a test taking or boards perspective. That can kind of help. Um, keep it all straight in your head. So having some of those very specific differences is important um, before you're a true expert. <laughs> so going through one, I, I hate to kind of start off with a the medication class that we don't really use anymore, but I do think it's important because um, one of the, the classes of medications that we've kind of gotten away from is st- Technically FDA approved for Crohn's disease, um, but some of you may be familiar with um, like the sulfasalazine, so an amino salicylate. Um, so sulfasalazine, and then also uh, misalamine is the more uh, is the newer version right. of um, of that. So the sulfasalazine, um, you're basically um, counting on the fact that you're because it breaks apart, and one part is absorbed systemically, uh, which is why it can help with. Certain, like, rheumatoid conditions and things like that that it can promote inflammation in the body. Um, but then the other part is released uh, into the, the intestinal tract, which is how it helps with Crohn's. So you, um, sulfasalazine is still utilized now, just not in Crohn's. Um, you'll see it a lot more in ulcerative colitis. But then the mesalamine, they have all these different formulations of it. And that can get really confusing as well because you'll have things like the Asacol HD. You'll have mm-hmm. the Pentassa. You'll have the enemas versus suppositories and um, all these in between. Basically, the the big difference between this, because they're not all the same, um just to give you some background information the the site of action is really the the differentiating factor so for just to throw an example out there, like the pentassa um that's going to kind of be released throughout the entire intestinal tract, which is why that's one we used to think of it being more um of a treatment option for Crohn specifically um and then like acecol h d also you know goes to the the ileum um in past the terminal ileum, obviously the proximal colon. Um, whereas something like mesalamine enema is going to be st- mostly concentrated in the distal colon, the suppository obviously for the rectum. So those were associated with ulcerative colitis and still sometimes utilized in that disease. The problem is the data when Crohn's disease specifically, even though that we know that we're we're getting release in the small intestine and and where we would typically think of as the site of action, the mesalamine products, uh, regardless of which one you're looking at, don't have very good data. And the guidelines have basically pushed away from uh, the mesalamine products in general for Crohn's. So if you have a patient who has Crohn's disease that's on one of these agents, that's kind of like the old school way of doing things and probably better options available, especially if they're having frequent flare-ups and
1: yeah, not maintaining remission. And even on the previous guideline before the most recent one, it was already kind of controversial and uh, there wasn't yeah. great evidence behind it. And they kind of took it away with this one. Which kind of leaves and we'll talk about all the different treatment options, but kind of leaves um primarily expensive meds. Um I mean, the steroids and stuff, but primarily expensive meds. So it's very interesting.
0: Yeah. It's not great. No. Um, um a cost, might as well, from a cost perspective. No, not yes, from a
1: cost perspective. But if that's what they're recommending that hopefully there will not be issues getting it covered if the patient's insured.
0: Yeah, and oh and we'll talk, we'll mention some other options too if they're not insured because we don't want to leave those patients hanging, obviously. Right.
1: right. Um, just a couple of things about the aminosalicylates, um, uh, just so you know. Um, severe skin reactions can happen, so um, SJS. Also hepatic issues, pulmonary fibrosis. They're definitely not the cleanest of meds, um, but, you know, if, if you're not using them, then it's not a big deal.
0: Yes, so make sure. No more mesalamine if you can help it. Um, we're definitely not going to – we want the most bang for our buck if we're going to put patients on these meds. Right. So corticosteroids. We'll, we'll just kind of mention these briefly um, before we get into the more uh, elaborate and you know commonly used meds. But we all are familiar with corticosteroids. Obviously, the thought process is, is to you know, kind of suppress the inflammation. Um, a lot of times we're thinking about these. If we are going to use them in Crohn's, we're thinking about them along the lines of – uh, basically just is a temporary thing to help to sort of um, get, you know, the patient into remission. And mm-hmm. then as far as maintenance of remission, we do not want to use steroids. Right. Obviously. Long-term. We don't want to put them in the long-term. Um, so corticosteroids in general uh, can, can be utilized. To give you an idea, prednisone uh, in doses, usually 40 to 60 milligrams per day. The guidelines mention the 60 milligrams per day is is the most commonly studied dose, um, but, you know, or an equivalent uh, Corticosteroid, you know, if you were to convert it to methylprednisolone or prednisolone or something, Um, but 60 milligrams of prednisone, and then there's also a budesonide um, as well. Now, there's two different forms of budesonide, so they have for ulcerative colitis, they have budesonide, what's called MMX technology, um, and it's basically uh, released specifically in the colon. So the thought process is to avoid the systemic effects of steroid use. Right. So it's a 9-milligram extended-release tablet. They use that MMX technology to create that extended-release uh, formula. And um, in ulcerative colitis, that's, it's released where it needs to be in the colon and not in the small intestine. They have another version though, for Crohns specifically, and um, that one is going to be released a little bit quicker as far as you know in in the small intestinal range, um, and that is where it's uh, thought to be obviously more effective for for uh, Crohn specifically, um, however, when you compare it to other you know, corticosteroids, specifically prednisone, it's actually probably going to give you a less uh, robust response, Mm -hmm. um, less chance of of getting to remission. So what the guidelines basically say is you have to kind of outweigh the options based on the patient's comorbidities and thinking about, you know, okay, if they do have systemic absorption of prednisone, is that going to cause other issues based on the patient's comorbidities? And if the the less likely chance of getting to remission with the budesonide, um, and Entecort uh, EC is the brand name for Crohn's, mm-hmm. if that is going to, you know, that risk of not reaching remission with that is going to outweigh the benefit of avoiding those side effects systemically, then that may be an option. But um, know that uh, you may be getting a little bit of a weaker response with the budesonide, even though. It, I feel like they advertise it if is as if it's a much better option. The data does not. Oh, well, they do reflect that.
1: Which I guess wouldn't you even if you had a well, you might not. But wouldn't Be, think putting yourself in the shoes yeah. of big pharma As a
0: business and yeah. not someone with integrity. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should use the other company's drug.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. You know what? Just use prednisone. Our our product stinks. Ours is expensive and it's not as good. <laughs> so yeah, um, that's that's the the big difference in the budesonide. That's the um, version for Crohn's is three milligram extended release capsules. And that one releases specifically the terminal ileum. And so, you know, technically speaking, they're not really interchangeable either. Sometimes people will uh, swap them out, but realistically, you need one for ulcerative colitis because it gets released further down in the colon. Right. So keep that in mind too.
1: Yeah, and um, like just a reminder because everybody knows, but they're not clean drugs. So there's um, short-term adverse effects and definitely long-term adverse effects if you kept people on these for a long time. Um, so short-term, increased appetite and weight gain. Um, emotional instability but i mean really people can have aggressive behavior like the the um, family members will describe that they just don't recognize the behavior that the patient's having sometimes um this can even be on short courses of steroids that people get all the time for various different things um trouble sleeping gi upset would be all things that could happen with a short course long term you can have much bigger problems like adrenal suppression immunosuppression um, impaired wound healing hypertension, hyperglycemia, that can also happen in the short term, osteoporosis, um, sodium retention, edema, uh, things of that nature.
0: And, you know, based on that laundry list of uh, adverse effects that steroids can have, you know, that's associated with them, the, the big question is, like, why are we needing to so quickly kind of maintain the patient's um, symptoms besides the discomfort and pain that can be associated with it. Um, you know, Crohn's disease in general has a lot of complications if left untreated and the, the flares, not kind of maintained and, you know, pushed to remission. So um, Cole had mentioned um, fistulas, which is the, you know, the, the basically the formation of um between the, the colon and other parts of the intestines um, or even like the bladder and things like that. so it kind of forms like a, a bridge, if you will, for lack of a better term. Um, it can cause small bowel obstructions, malabsorption of you know, B12. It can cause uh, you know, nephrolithiasis. Um, it also can increase the risk of malignancy as well, although ulcerative colitis is typically considered to be higher risk of malignancy, or at least leading to the uh, increasing the risk of malignancy. But um, that's why we're also mentioning the um, stuff about colon cancer and whatnot, because uh, if someone with Crohn's, we would want to monitor them. Uh, for that. But ultimately we wanted to, to control the patient's symptoms to avoid all those long-term effects. So even if it means we have to use steroids in the short term, uh, ultimately it, it will hopefully be a net benefit for the patient in the long run. Uh, but when we talk about like the actual you know medications that are a little bit more uh, uh, useful, if you will, um, as far as not only ma- getting to remission, but actually maintaining remission, um, it's going to be important to kind of think about like the classification or, or I guess severity you'd say of crohn's disease, um, and so there's not like a a really ideal global classification system you know they have some uh, some basically classifications that are based on you know hist- uh, histological you know, studies or endoscopic, um, studies, um, you could have certain, um, scoring systems that are utilized. And, uh, once, you know, based on a patient kind of questionnaire and symptom score, you can kind of calculate. And if it's a certain score, then, uh, you know, that's going to be considered moderate or severe. Um, we're going to be kind of focusing on the moderate to severe patients. So, you know, that's kind of, we'll, we'll be, spending most of our time talking about the, the treatment options for those um so just know though that it may change as far as the how we can classify um patient severity um based on the clinic and and all that right. um that, that you're working with
1: and the score um so one score that's frequently used is the Crohn's disease activity index yeah. and it takes into account multiple things um it's going to take you know patients um weight, sex all that sort of stuff but specific to Um, Crohn's they're going to look at the number of softer liquid stools the patients had in the last week um, their abdominal pain that they've complained about over the last seven days uh, general well-being um, anti-diarrhea drug use uh, if they have possibly have an abdominal mass um, even lab findings like hematocrit and then some questions um, related to like autoimmune findings or other complications like if the patient has arthritis or arthralgias um, uh, uh, anal fissures, fistulas, abscesses, other fistulas. If they have a fever, all these are going to add to the, that point system. And the higher it goes, the more likely it is to be severe or even fulminant disease.
0: So, moderate to severe ulcerative colitis, or I'm sorry, Crohn's. I'm- already off topic. Um, Monitor severe Crohn's disease. So we've mentioned steroids. That's that's one option. Um, however, we do have a lot of other recommendations now that uh, we can utilize certain medications to induce remission. We don't have to necessarily use steroids. Um, that may be something that we can kind of start with uh, if you know we needed to. And then if that's not enough to kind of push them to remission, then we can start pulling out some of the big guns. So I guess, Cole, you you want to just kind of go through – we'll go through the meds individually, the classes first, and then we'll kind of lump it all together at the end. Sure. And kind of have, how it all comes together. So um, to kind of think through some of the – we'll start with the older agents. Um, so things like uh, the immunosuppressive, the thiopurines um, is a big one uh, that is still utilized in, in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, but um, we'll talk about how we can kind of uh, – when to use these and how to use them um towards the end but azathioprine is uh the very commonly used um thioprine that's uh, still used for various disease states now but um it is a, a drug that does carry a box warning for chronic um immunosuppression which is what it's for <laughs> but because of that it does carry an increased risk of Um, malignancy in patients with IBD. So uh, that's something to kind of consider. And then as far as uh, some of the toxicities, um, hematological toxicities are a concern. And there are are a patient, like a patient demographic that has like a genetic um, deficiency of an enzyme called thiopurine methyltransferase. And so that's basically uh, something that if a patient does have a deficiency in that enzyme, we we don't want to be putting them on this because they're not going to be able to utilize it um appropriately and so they actually have genetic testing you can do um looking for thiopurine methyltransferase, uh, and that should be kind of considered before initial use of azathioprine um, or the other version six six mercaptopurine mm-hmm. um, to treat patients especially in ibd um, and you know if 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 that's available, you know, obviously in certain situations we may not be able to do that, but know that that is a an ideal situation. We want to get that genetic testing done to make sure they're not somebody in that population that's right. going to have to worry about that. Um, adverse effects uh, usually GI complaints are a big one. Besides, obviously the more severe warnings and concerns, uh, but just day to day kind of side effects, adverse effects, GI effects rather, um, rashes can also also happen, and then increased uh, LFTs. So you kind of want to keep an eye on on the. Uh, LFTs and uh, make sure they're not going too high up from baseline and just kind of not showing any kind of uh, hepatic toxicity Um, and then mecaptopurine similar Um, the uh, does not carry the box warning though which is a little different so um, to be as safe as possible as far as you know the immunosuppression and potential increased risk of malignancy maybe the mycaptopurine may be a better uh, option however I feel like a lot of the studies are all surrounding uh, azathioprine so I'm wondering if it's uh, – if maybe if we just – if we studied mercaptopurine more, maybe we'd start to see more of that increased risk. I don't know. Um, that's, just, that's just me guessing.
1: Though as far as the cost goes, azathioprine is going to be pretty affordable.
0: Yeah. Which is good. For sure. Yeah. Versus um, the other ones. do you do want to make sure they take it an empty stomach to increase absorption. That's another kind of just quick clinical pearl. Yeah. Especially because these patients might have absorption issues. Yes. At baseline.
1: <laughs> um, so – Um, Next class of agents would be TNF-alpha antagonists. So I think we've all probably heard of TNF-alpha, but it induces pro-inflammatory cytokines like interleukins. We think of it as an inflammatory mediator. Um, It enhances leukocyte migration, activates neutrophils and eosinophils, um, induces acute phase reactants, tissue-degrading enzymes, um, and overall is going to um, significantly increase the um, uh, pro-inflammation of these patients who have Crohn's or even UC, of course. So we have developed um, monoclonal antibody agents that we can specifically target TNF-alpha and block it. It's indicated for patients with moderate to severe Crohn's disease. Um, and I have told this story on the podcast before, but I figure I might as well tell it today because we have lots of new free C listeners. Um, but I had uh, a professor in pharmacy school who I think was involved in research of TNF-alpha. And it was in its nascent stages I guess as we'll say the research was um and so he taught this whole section I guess it was in some sort of pathophysiology class or something and pretty much all he talked about the whole time was TNF alpha because that's what he did his research on um and so you could pretty much guarantee that on all his test questions maybe he had 10 of the test questions that the answer would have something to do with TNF alpha so if you saw TNF alpha just circle that answer and it was going to be right and it was great i sure
0: yeah. I got them all right boom but now here we are. we, have we are talking about it's it. It's probably because of him. <laughs> Maybe. Um, so some other things to consider with TNF-alpha uh, antagonists. Uh, basically, the infection risk is a big warning that we have with those. Um, so anything that's going to be affecting you know, your body's immune response, even including inflammatory response, could put the re- increased risk of uh, infection. Um, there's a chance that we could cause a worsening of a patient with heart failure. Um so if we want to make sure that they have a history of that we've kind of considered the, that as a risk um making sure we have all the necessary monitoring with an echo and all that and, or maybe even using a different medication if needed. Um there's also a potential for increased risk of lymphomas uh, as well as neutropenia uh and so you know we got to keep all those kind of more severe side effects in mind. Um, There is also, obviously because of that infection risk, um, TB, um, invasive fungal, other opportunistic type infections um, can be uh, something that we're concerned with. So we definitely want to get at least initially a negative TB test um, before kind of starting therapy and then periodically after uh, if the patient's going to stay on it long term. And then if the patient does have uh, latent TB, then we want to go ahead and treat that prior to initiating treatment um, if possible. Or, obviously, active TB, but they'd probably know it right. <laughs> if, if if they're doing the screening. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, Hopefully, they've been treated for that. that so, problem. Um, there's specific TNF-alpha uh, inhibitors that are utilized in Crohn's disease. Um, so, the big one, Humira, um, I'm sure we've all seen that one. Um, it's available now as an uh, auto-injector that's a citrate-free uh, medication. Basically, the citrate was thought to be one of the things that caused the uh, – this injection site reactions and, and pain at the injection site. So the citrate free is uh, supposedly. Um, in, in I've heard patients tell me that it, it definitely helps with the the injection site pain. I've yeah, significant significantly. Yeah, I've uh, definitely uh, I've wondered myself like cause we have we have a version of hum- the older version of Humana mm-hmm. that's not the citrate free at our clinic in our three forty B pricing for like twenty five dollars yeah. cash price, and I'm like. I I wouldn't inject myself with uh, one just to test that, but I want to see how bad it hurts. I really do. (laughs) Um, Just because I'm just kind of curious. How's your stomach feeling? Yeah. Got some Crohn's? Yeah. No, something's fine. So it'd be more so for uh, data collection purposes. (laughs) And I don't think that's what that's uh, designed for. So... Um, Humair is one of them, and, and you'll see that utilized in ulcerative colitis as well. Yep. Uh, they also infliximab, uh, which is an IV-infused uh, TNF-alpha antagonist. Um, so the infusion reactions uh, are somewhat common, and sometimes you'll see patients going to get premedicated with some you know, Benadryl and things like that beforehand. Uh, but it is an IV infusion, so that, that can potentially add a barrier to, to care. Um, and then the other version, the uh, brand name uh, Simzia, I, I don't feel like we ever see this one utilized in in person and that's actually a good thing which we can get to the the guidelines i'll explain why but um is the uh, pegol is the uh generic or you know actual official name um it's it's indicated specifically for crohn's disease Um, i don't believe they've ever sought uh FDA approval for ulcerative colitis, um, but it's also a subQ injection. Um, but it's it's actually uh, considered to be by the new guidelines. So spoiler alert: We'll come back to this. But it's basically in, inferior based on the data. Um, compared to the other uh, TNF-alpha antagonists. So that would be the one that uh, we would kind of save, if possible, um, for a situation where we just absolutely had to, whether it was cost or something along those lines. Right. Uh, in, real quick before we move on, because I, I know Cole had mentioned, you know, the cost of all these and if they have insurance and all that stuff. If you have a patient who doesn't have insurance or self-pay, maybe they're even like a low-income patient, um, all of these, these med- especially now that they have like a lot of the, the – um, uh, like the biologics that have had um, – what do you call them? I'm drawing a blank now. Not, um, not follow-ons like they call so Biosimilars? Biosimilars. Thank you, Cole. Um, my brain stopped working for a second. But uh, the biosimilars and whatnot, the, that's one hoping – hopefully going to drive the pro- – or continue to drive the cost down. But um, they, these companies that are producing these obviously have uh, – certain patient assistance programs, and there there are definitely ways to get patients on this. So I don't want you to see an uninsured patient and just automatically count them out. Um, you know, in some situations that may be the case, but... There are a whole bunch of different avenues. Send it to our clinic if you're in a trial scenario we'll take care of it. I can almost
1: guarantee you that all of these drugs will have a program to where in two to four weeks, if you submit the appropriate documentation, you can get this patient approved to have the med for free for a year. Absolutely. And then just reassess the following year. And usually all they need are um, some enrollment forms filled out by the doctor, some enrollment forms and HIPAA forms signed by the patient, some income forms filled out, and if, if they're totally uninsured, then that's pretty much it. And then you, they, will, they'll will, even if they're insured and say so the insurance won't cover it or their copays is unaffordable, you can submit additional um, information like PA denials, appeal denials, um, letters of uh, financial hardship, and that sort of thing, and usually get these things approved. It takes a little bit of extra work. Um, but it could be worth it, especially because you, I mean, if you don't have the staff to do this, the patient can fill out a lot of the stuff on their own. And if they are feel like it's urgent enough for them to have the medicine because they're prompted by their disease state, then that could be helpful as well.
0: Yeah. And there's state, you know, organizations like in South Carolina, we have Will Vista that has certain expensive medications on formulary that they'll give if the patient's enrolled. We have places like uh, FQHCs, like where I work, where we have a 340B pharmacy where you can get some of these medications really, really cheap. So please don't just write them off um, and give them nonsense you know, a like lot of these companies
1: will have um, a specific rep or a care manager who works alongside the drug sales rep to kind of intermediate with these patient assistance programs too so ask your reps and get hooked up with
0: them and they can be helpful as well yes they want they want to to use these medications yep. they make a lot of money off the insured uh, patients that you know are being put on these so they usually will have plenty of opportunities to get patients covered if they don't have insurance right
1: and i'm sure there's some hope that the patient ends up with insurance yeah. and has it paid for that that's part of part of it but i think it's also because they i'm sure there's something along the tax line tax write-offs yeah. and stuff like that to, like they have like lily cares and various different things mm-hmm. that it's it's kind of pitched as like a um a charity sort of thing but it's good it can get patients yeah. the drugs when they wouldn't have them otherwise very expensive drugs.
0: yes all right, so another drug that you've probably seen, at least the commercials for, uh, Intivio uh, is the brand name. So um, it's another IV formulation. Um, it's approved in both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, um, but it's uh, the IV infusion makes can potentially add a barrier depending on patient's transportation you know, needs and stuff like that. But it is something that uh, can be very useful. Um, it's an integrin receptor antagonist, so it's a completely separate class of medication um, compared to the TNF-alpha inhibitors the the one thing to keep in mind is the benefit is usually seen within the first um you know few weeks to to at least within the first 3 months and the basically the the label indication says if you do not see a benefit by week 14 um to go ahead and discontinue that you probably won't see much benefit after that Um, Some warnings to consider, you know, the infusion reaction because it's IV is something to consider. The infection risk is still there um, as well as the potential for liver injury. So checking LFTs, um, routine TB screening, just like with the TNF-alpha inhibitors is important. And then uh, making sure that all the vaccines, especially the live vaccines, um, are up to date. Which luckily we don't have to really use live vaccines that much anymore. Right. But making sure that if you do, you have a patient that uh, is up to date on all their vaccines before starting therapy, so that you can get the most you know uh, robust immune response to the vaccine before you put them on something that could. Can- potentially suppress their immune system a little bit right um and then more like common adverse effects uh nasopharyngitis has been uh increased uh or reported to be increased risk um, when you have this medication as well as the uh like some joint pain and, and things like that and then headaches is often reported as well but uh i feel like especially the headache i feel like we can get by with that versus the uh the pain of <laughs> having a crohn's flare yes
1: hopefully Um, So we have another class that has a medication in it, and that's the interleukin blockers. So we talked about um, that being pro-inflammatory. Anti-IL-12 and 23 antibody is what it is. Um, But Stelara, not an uncommon medication to use. Ustakinumab, um, another monoclonal antibody. This one is a bit unique because it's sub-Q, but also has an IV formulation. Um, Like I said, blocks IL-12, blocks IL-23, inhibits the receptors um, for the cytokines on T-cells, on natural killer cells, on antigen-presenting cells as well. Um, Similar to the others, increased risk for serious infections, TB. um, So you need an initial negative TB test, and then monitoring after that, treat the latent TB just like the others. Um, but also invasive fungal infections and other opportunistic infections. So these, uh, since they, they affect the immune system in this way, definitely can carry those risks.
0: So the, there's actually, we mentioned uh, the Intivio as far as an integrin receptor antagonist, but there's actually another uh, integrin receptor antagonist that's on the market. Um, if you've looked at some of the, the MS uh, guidelines and treatment options, the, you may recognize this drug, um, but natalizumab or tasabri the brand name. This is, this is one that's only approved for Crohn's. It's not uh, approved in ulcerative colitis. Um, it's given IV as well. Um, the problem with this is it has a box warning for uh, an increased risk of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy or PML. Um, it's a viral infection in the brain um, that can lead to severe disability, if not death. Um, so it's a very, very uh, serious, potentially, you know, uh, fatal uh, situation that can occur. And, uh, it is, uh, there's a REMS program associated with this called touch. Um, and it's basically to kind of monitor, uh, there's a, a virus that you'd be checking for, uh, the JC virus that you'd be checking for ahead of time before you'd start a patient on this. Um, and because of that risk of PML, there's actually been a lot of post-marketing surveillance that's been done. And this is one that we have, used in Crohn's disease um, in the past, but the newest guidelines actually recommend against its use. And so that's kind of a, a big change because, um, you know, obviously it's a whole medication class. This is approved for Crohn's disease specifically, as obviously as well as MS. But uh, they, they basically have said the risk of PML is, is such a – to a high extent that they really would recommend not using this medication. Uh, they say if, you know, the patient has kind of tried other options and, you know, we're kind of stuck – you know, explaining them to, to to them the risk of of uh you know the PML development and if if basically the potential for remission outweighs that risk and they're okay with that, then you could consider it. But the guidelines basically suggest against its use. Yeah. Um it also causes the infusion reactions because it's an IV um formulation, um the headache, fatigue, it can induce depression. Um and then patients have often reported like abdominal and back pain as well. So not the cleanest medication that we have available, but natalizumab. It's off the, off the good list now, at least for Crohn's. But we'll come back to that when we clean all this up and yeah. put it into context. So
1: um, thinking a little bit about what you're going to do if you have a mild patient with Crohn's disease or if you have a moderate you're patient with Crohn's disease. So in a mild patient, like we kind of said before, we're thinking um, corticosteroids. So there is a controlled ileal release, budesonide, like we talked about. Um, nine milligrams once a day um, can can be effective, should be used for induction of symptomatic remission, and you can continue it up to four months to maintain remission. Um, so like we said, the, um, sulfasala- the mesalamine and the sulfasalazine probably shouldn't be used in this situation. Um, and also um, antibiotics, which Mike talked about, the fistulas, um, wouldn't be effective in this
0: instance either, just to kind of... Um, induce remission in a mild case. Yeah, they used to use uh, metronidazole and cipro. It's uh, kind of like the antibiotics that would be utilized in Crohn's, and that's also been discussed as not kind of being taken off the table now as well. So, um, some of our old school stuff definitely not recommended anymore. Yeah, it's very interesting. What well, means we're getting better drugs, right? Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's kind of let's break it down. So we have moderate to severe um, Crohn's disease. Uh, based on the guidelines um we have uh, uh the TNF alpha inhibitors is kind of usually what we think of as like a, a good first line option if especially if we're not going to use steroids um TNF alpha inhibitors they basically recommend the guidelines recommend um this is from the the uh, American um College of Gastroenterology but um uh, the American Gastroenterology Academy I mean sorry
1: the uh <laughs> that's just kind of a silly one though do they ever have American American then the name then academy at the end
0: no no i don't no, think nobody so. else does right I'm, mm, i don't know we should probably double check that before we i'm going to say that there's no one else that i'm very ever. positive In about the history okay right on <laughs> cole's cole's positive um it, is, it should be AAG yeah yeah i like that better so yeah <laughs> that's true that, that would be that make more sense all right, so you have a patient with monitor severe, uh, they do recommend a, a TNF-alpha antagonist um, over no treatment um, when it comes to induction and, and maintenance of remission as well. Um, and so the, the data as far as kind of, you know, which of those agents to pick, because before we used to say any of the TNF-alpha inhibitors that are approved, go for it. Um, now there, there's evidence that kind of support the use of infliximab um, as well as adalimumab, humera, um over the, uh, the citralizumab. Uh, that one has kind of low evidence associated with it and how effective it is versus the moderate uh, efficacy and, and evidence that's uh, seen with the infliximab and adalimumab. So between those three TNF-alpha inhibitors that are available, uh, that would, the, the infliximab and adalimumab would be the way to go uh, if possible. Um, the citri- Citralizumab, uh, not nearly as effective based on the data that we have. They also say that you could use the Intivio, the um as well. Uh, it's going to be suggested to use that over no treatment um, for induction as well as maintenance therapy. And then um, the uh, Stelara that Cole had mentioned um, also is another one that they recommend for induction and/or uh, maintenance of remission as well. Um, this is the the part that's one of the first parts of the recommendations is when they bring up the uh, natalizumab and they say that even compared to no treatment for in- induction and maintenance of remission, they suggest against natalizumab um, over no treatment. So it's basically saying that they would re- they would almost rather you treat, not treat them than give natalizumab. <laughs> That's saying something. I think it's pretty, and it's a moderate uh, level of evidence, suggestion, recommendation. Um, so basically, they they base it off of, like I said, the post marketing um, surveillance data showing that that um, PML risk is probably not worth the uh, the bang the, the the benefit you'll see. So not enough bang for your buck, if you will. Um, if you are going to use it, like I said, that that JC virus or the John Cunningham virus, uh, they want to make sure that uh, you have it. Uh, you do the antibody test for that and then get a negative result and then monitor it, um, over time and, right. um, and make sure the pay, if you are going to use this med, but they, they recommend against it. Um,
1: yeah. And so, I mean, similarly, that's kind of the same stance they take about the, the appearance, um, cause they recommend, um, against the use of those over no treatment for achieving remission. They do actually make a caveat that, um, the use of the appearance over no treatment for maintenance, um, can be done um or patients in corticosteroid induced remission it could be done but yeah in general um they they also give that level of evidence uh,
0: to be very low so yeah and then the question becomes okay well what if is there any benefit between giving a tnf alpha inhibitor along with like immunosuppressive therapy um and there is actually some data uh, that's that's been shown um that maybe that combo is is appropriate. Um, so kind of uh the thing to think about is the Sonic trial. I don't know if you guys have seen this or not. It's kind of uh I can't remember the exact date of the, in the year that this came out, but it's it's been out for a while. Um but basically what they looked at is the uh is infliximab um plus azathioprine um versus infliximab uh or azathioprine as monotherapy. Um and they saw that the combo was um statistically significant. Um, com- the combo is better than either agent used by themselves. And uh, just to give you an example, um, when they could look into the primary outcome, the corticosteroid-free clinical remission at, at week 26 was kind of like their primary outcome. Um, they saw that uh, the combo was superior to infliximab with a number needed to treat of uh, eight. And then the combo was superior to azathioprine monotherapy with a number needed to treat of four. So um, the combo therapy, and again, that's to, you know, could basically induce remission, um, not necessarily for maintenance. So um, the combo could, could be utilized there. Um, and then the guidelines do point out um, that the combo with um, methotrexate is also a potential, but they mm-hmm. are very specific about the formulation of methotrexate right. um, being sub Q or IV form- or IM formulations, not the oral formulation um cole and i were chatting about this beforehand and uh we were our, our theory based on without looking at theory it up, i think so. it's proven I, is it is it proven i didn't no. i haven't double checked but i feel like it's good enough we'll say theory just in case we're way off but i think it probably has to do with the absorption of taking it orally um specifically in, in Crohn's is where we don't really want to we want to stay away from the uh oral methotrexate and give sub-q or, or IM versions right. um, weekly instead. Right. Um, but the, even though the, the data um, is kind of around the infliximab-azathioprine combo, uh, it doesn't mean that you won't see Humira and azathioprine utilized together um, or with methotrexate or something like that. Um, it, they can be kind of extrapolated in some cases. Obviously, the level of evidence is going to be not as nearly as high, but that could be a potential option. But if it comes down to the patient will only take one therapy for the induction of remission we remember the TNF alpha inhibitors um, or one of the other biologics is absolutely going to be the the go to right. um, the immunosuppressive therapy is mono mono uh, therapy is not going to be utilized for induction like Cole was saying earlier so that's um, something that, important to keep in mind so then it can also be obviously a barrier for someone who doesn't have insurance like we had also mentioned so right. I feel like that's it's very easy to just Default back now. Just give me the Tylenol. It's yeah. cheap. Um, yeah. Try to do your best to get them on one of these. It's worth a shot. More expensive meds. It's worth a shot. Um, and then, like like we were saying, uh, as far as. Um, if you've used one TNF alpha inhibitor, um, there is some evidence, especially with, if Humira being the first line, if, if Humira was the first line drug used, um, you don't necessarily have to switch to a separate class. If you don't have, uh, the, you know, you don't see benefits with, with Adalimumab. Um, there is some evidence that you could potentially use infliximab, even though they're in the same class, uh, as a second line agent. And you see this with like rheumatoid arthritis mm-hmm. and stuff as well. They'll say, you know, if one TNF alpha inhibitor doesn't work, doesn't mean that the other ones won't, um. You know, that's going to be kind of, a, again, a decision between you and the patient. Uh, and, and it may be something where, you know, sure, you could use infliximab, but they can also get intivio or stelara coverage, so then why not switch to something like that? Right. Um, but just know that if that's, for whatever reason, that's, like, the option you're kind of stuck with, you can try another TNF-alpha inhibitor, especially if infl- infliximab is always kind of thought to be a little bit stronger, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. So, definitely something to to consider there. Um. So we mentioned, note, not using thiopur- thi- thiopurines is monotherapy. Um, however, once a patient has kind of been in, induced into remission, so they've, they've gone through the induction process, you're in remission. Uh, in that case, uh, you could potentially use thiopurines um, right. to maintain that instead. And that's what they recommend over no treatment at all. Right. The other option would be to use the Right, biologic is monotherapy. So that might be an
1: instance if they couldn't continue on the biologic for whatever yes. reason they're saying, use it, use the thiopurine
0: instead of nothing. Yep. Yep. Um, and then uh, the, the, one, the one difference to the immunosuppressive agent is if you have to use immunosuppressive therapy uh, for induction and you don't have, let's say, just absolutely, there's no way to get a biologic. Um, in that case, methotrexate uh, monotherapy, IM or sub-Q over no treatment. Whereas that's not really a recommendation with the diapurins and, right. and all that. So right. um, ideally, we want biologics. But worst case scenario, methotrexate is still an option as, long as, as well as steroids too. Right. So, so there's options. Yeah.
1: So what updates did we miss from the um,
0: guideline? So that, but we, that, what I just was talking about was directly from yeah, I think we the new guidelines. It, I think we hit it all right. And yeah, and basically, uh, keep in mind, obviously the, the escalation if the TNF-alpha inhibitor is not there, then using the Intivio as an option or Stellara as well. Um, there, there's some evidence that, uh, you know, shows that, um, adding the, like the, the purines as well as the, uh, or, or methotrexate could potentially help, um, with the Intivio as in the Stellara as well. Um, but, uh, you know it's one of those things that you could you could recommend that um they they do they say specifically um that they don't make a specific recommendation regarding that because the data is kind of lacking um it's, they just have it listed as a knowledge gap uh there are definitely clinicians out there though that will use the combo um but that's kind of extrapolating the TNF alpha inhibitor uh data along with the thiopurines um you know the data that's seen in that class t- combo ver- you know we can't directly say or uh, we don't have any data to support necessarily the use of Stelara or Entyvio in combination with methotrexate or thiopurines. But I will say I've definitely I've seen it before um, utilized. But there's it's a considered a knowledge gap as of right now. Um, so they do actually specifically mention that right. Um, and then the other question, you know, it's kind of okay. Well, how long can they be on a biologic? Um, that's the other thing that they're not super clear about based on, again, kind of being a knowledge gap. Um, Once the patient has kind of reached remission, then we always think, at least, can you know, consider de-escalating therapy. So maybe instead of the combo, we can go to biologic or the diapurine by itself or methotrexate by itself. Um, But that's really, I would say, be a, a conversation between you and the patient to kind of figure out where you need to go. And since there's not a lot of great data as far as the you know true long-term, long-term effects of a biologic uh, with the increased risk of infection and all that good stuff. Definitely something that uh, you may want to use a little bit of caution with. So recap real quick. For those of you who, uh, since you know, if you're following along at home, uh, hopefully, <laughs> the uh, we're going to induce remission with uh, either steroids and maybe in more mild cases, or if they have, we haven't had uh, too many flare-ups to begin with. Um, but the other option, obviously, being the biologics. Uh, ideally, we would want to use a biologic plus uh, an immunosuppressive agent. But if you have to choose between the two, def- biologics hand down, um, hands down is going to be the option. Um, if that's not enough to reach remission, we could consider another TNF-alpha inhibitor, especially if Humira was utilized first. Um, and then from there, we can go to the Intivio um, with or without immunosuppressive therapy. If that's not enough, then we can uh, graduate up to the uh, Stellara as well. Um, it's also technically speaking, you don't have to go in that particular order, but uh, that's kind of how I, I think about it, especially from a cost perspective. Um, and getting things covered, the, uh, they probably are going to want to see that you've used some of the other agents first, um, especially the ones like the TM-valve inhibitors have been around a lot longer, so they're going to be on more formularies and all that good stuff. Um, and then once you have remission, consider de-escalating therapy and um, monitoring kind of from there, hopefully keep them in remission, but uh, just weigh the, the pros and the cons of which therapy you're going to DC and which one you're going to continue. Right. And then hopefully to keep the patient in remission for... Long, long time. And you fix it. <laughs> fix it. Well, kind of. Suppress it. Suppress it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I've got some stuff on cancer. If, Talk to if me. If that's all you got for Crohn's. That's all I got. Okay. So Crohn's does put you at an increased risk for colon cancer. So we decided we wanted to uh, briefly mention a couple things about um, the recommendations, especially because in the last few years they've adjusted a little bit um, uh, around the age of when they recommend cancer screening. Um, so we're transitioning a little bit to colorectal cancer. So Primarily, um, where we go for these, there's a a couple different um, uh, guidelines and recommendations. But the U.S. Preventive Task Force is a pretty good place to start. Um, So in general, when you think about a colonoscopy, you're you're usually thinking of age 50, right? Um, So they have decreased that... Uh, recommended age to 45 now. Um, They don't have as strong a level of evidence with the ages 45 to 49 population with the screening, but they have adjusted the recommendations to say 45 and up, we think that they should be screened in some way. Um, And then um, they have a higher level of evidence with uh, ages 50 to 75 to say that we definitely want them to be screened. And then 76 to 85, um, it kind of goes lower because it's a risk benefit kind of thing. You know what what are you willing to do about what you find kind of thing so age forty five that's kind of the the big change, so I wanted to mention a couple of the tests too because uh, we all think of colonoscopies, and we all probably also think of stool tests so there's a couple of different um, um, with uh, stool tests for one but also related to colonoscopies there's they call that they classify that as a direct visualization test, and there's a couple of those as well. I think the stool tests are pretty interesting because I'm interested, I'm more interested, I don't have all the information here today, but I'm more interested in knowing, like, um, do, you know, are these reliable? Is this something that we can use in place of, or blah, 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 blah. So they give a little bit of information on the U.S. Preventive Task Force about these tests. So thinking about the stool-based tests, there's three different ones. Um, there's a high-sensitivity guaiac-fecal, I don't know if that's how you say that, mm-hmm. guaiac-fecal occult blood test, GFOBT that's one. There's also a, a fecal immunochemical test, so they call that FIT, F-I-T, and also a stool DNA test, all three of those. Um, I won't get into all the details, but effectively, they um, uh, kind of think of the um, FIT test and the DNA test as being a little bit better than the guaiac fecal occult blood test. Um, the FIT test and the FOBT test are both looking at blood markers. Um Uh, And so the FOBT test, they use different methods for this. The FOBT looks at chemical detection of blood, while the FIT test uses antibodies to detect blood. The DNA test is different. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's looking for DNA biomarkers of cancer that has shed from the lining of the colon. And there's only one um, FDA-approved DNA test, and it's actually a combination of the DNA test and the FIT test. Mm -hmm. So it's going to have the DNA monitoring plus the blood monitoring it's called the SDNA fit test. So all of these would be examples of stool tests that you can get. Now, it's different, right? So I'll talk in a second about the colonoscopies and the time ranges and that sort of thing. With the stool tests, in general, they recommend having that done every year. And basically, if it comes back positive, i.e. comes back concerning, you're going to have to have a follow-up colonoscopy anyway. Uh, But they've determined that having um, either the FIT or the SDNA FIT um, every year is going to provide greater life years gained than having the FOBT test every year or having the SDNA FIT test every three years, basically saying a yearly test for the fecal blood test would be, or the fecal stool test would be better. Uh, And then if there's anything concerning, it needs to be followed up with a colonoscopy.
0: And and I think that's the other thing about that too is because when they mention this is you know kind of w- why they have like levels of evidence and things like that is because there are potential risks obviously with a colonoscopy um, or, or if you're doing like a CT um, scan as well. There's a couple of different ways to get you know imaging and more elaborate. Uh, I guess more robust test done, but they all have a potential you know, adverse outcomes associated with them. Right, uh, and so the the concern is, you know, if we do one of these fit tests, especially the earlier um, screening, earlier patients, you know, could we run the risk of you know sort of a, a false positive? Which we actually I've seen those myself at our yeah. clinic. Well, with the fit test coming back positive, um, and then they get a colonoscopy, nothing's wrong. Um, but I've also heard. Case reports and patient testimonials where uh, they got screened earlier based on the new U.S. Preventative Services Task Force um, recommendations, and they ended up finding, you know, lesions in, right. based on the colonoscopy, and then having those removed. And something that would have caused a problem before they were fifty. Yes, and and I actually know someone personally who's passed away um, in uh, early early age, um, you know, of, of colorectal cancer, and uh, it's something that definitely can. Um, it can show up, in when sometimes it's, just, it's too late, um, and so it's something that uh, I, I like the, the. I definitely like the recommendations that they moved it earlier. Um, if you hear some concern about it, though, that's that's the the potential concern is that there, we're we're testing these people with more um, invasive tests that could cause out negative outcomes. But right. I know me personally, um, if I was a patient in that situation, if I was forty five, I would definitely choose to go ahead and start the screen process because, to me, that's the risk of catching something uh, or the benefit of catching something early is far outweighed the risk of something right. potentially going wrong
1: and I agree personally for me, I would say the same thing, and that's why that's why, as a clinician you have to take guidelines as guidelines right? right and you're going to make this decision between you and your patient and what their concerns are and what you know about safety and efficacy right so the us presidential task force has to make these decisions based on population health and they're going to look at things like okay so maybe we caught this many cancers but we also had this many bad outcomes and so that's why and so that's why you know they have certain levels of evidence or they might not recommend a certain age versus another age but you know just cuz the the patient is 44 years old and 350 days doesn't mean they can't get a screening test or something if they have concerns or family history or or whatnot. But did want to touch on a couple of the visual tests that you mentioned. So, there's obviously the colonoscopy, Mike mentioned the CT scan, which is called a CT colonography. And then they also have a flexible sigmoidoscopy. Um, The flexible sigmoidoscopy doesn't view as much as the other two. And then the CT scan views kind of more than the others do because it can see some extra colonic um, areas. So the reason that could be concerning is because it might uh, reveal something concerning maybe that requires additional workup, and then it turned out to be nothing, and then it was unnecessary. could reveal something that was concerning that required additional workup that happened to be something concerning and needed workup. So it's it's it, it's one of those things. It's why people don't get full-body CTs all the time because they're going to find things that they need to look into that might not be a big deal.
0: Um, there's, but, al- there's also that risk of... There's some like some data showing that maybe the the more CTs you know you've had in your life, that could actually increase the risk of cancer by itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's the other thing to consider is yes. you know, all this. We don't want to be just screening people for the heck of it with a CT scan um, because that also could increase the risk of some kind of malignancy. A
1: right. And so generally, the colonoscopy or the CT colonography are preferred over the flexible sigmoidoscopy. But I think most people just do colonoscopy. Yeah. The colonoscopy is also only recommended every ten years. CT colonography and the sigmoidoscopy are every five. Personally, I'd rather have it every ten.
0: Yes, and you get a little propofol nap. Yeah, you sleep great. It's no big deal. Get lots of
1: gas, they yeah. blow you up. You know,
0: it's that. It's the prep beforehand. The prep, man, that you don't want to have to do it.
1: Though neither of us have ever had to do it. We just right. t- have heard a million people talk to us about it because yeah, know, we've dispensed a hundred thousand times.
0: And I've And I've. And I've. I've even had family members that you got you know test it early and right. things like that and I've, so I've seen the uh, <laughs> the not so fun uh, aspects of uh, having to to drink all that liquid. Yeah, see I have
1: a um, uh, I have a family history of colorectal cancer. You? Yeah, and so my mom basically wants me to be screened at like when I turn 30 she's like you need to be screened. I'm like, "Mom, listen.
0: I'll talk to I'll talk to the doctor. <laughs>
1: we'll see what he says."
0: "Mom, are you a licensed physician?" <laughs> That's good. I love that. Um, yeah. The uh, lucky, lucky for you, you have plenty of uh, people asking your family, right? Yeah, <laughs> plenty of people giving recommendations. <laughs> A lot of medical professionals in the uh, Swanson household, right, And right. family, family tree. Yeah. Um. But uh, yeah, what'd you think? We miss anything? No, that was great. I, I um, like that. I like how we, we, we was in the middle of the podcast. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> <I> think <laughs> we nailed on, it. Based on our own evaluation, <laughs> I think we crushed it. <laughs> yeah. And that's it's gonna prompt somebody to be like go on the evaluation after they take the test to get their credit and be like, mm. so what we
1: should do at the end is just be like, oh, Mike, that was the worst, that was so terrible. Sorry, and just apologize that's a bunch true. of times, and then out of sympathy, yep, they will go on and give hit us that, like really hit good that reviews. Five. No,
0: you guys actually did really good, like, yep. we really liked it, even that's if it's a, mediocre. That's a good strategy because yeah. right now, what we've got is a solid four going on because people are like, it was all right, but like. Come on. We don't have a they, solid four. It's like four nine. They let, no, 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 no. I mean like when they do the evaluation after the test. Oh, They're oh, going to be like, yeah, they were a little bit too I see, I see. self-indulged. So four. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Give us a five. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so thank you guys so much for listening. I hope that was helpful. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, concerns, anything, obviously our, our emails will be in the show notes. Uh, make sure that you – Go to the link uh, in the show notes, like I said at the beginning, um, if you are a member of FreeCE.com and uh, claim your uh, continuing education credit for this, for you uh, that are licensed and, and needing such things. Um, thank you to FreeCE.com and uh, it, letting us continue to work with them. It's been awesome. Um, they are fantastic um, to work with and uh, it's a, I definitely appreciate them and their support. And um, if you guys have uh, any other questions or anything like that, you you can always reach us on the social media platforms as well um you can uh, text the number in the show notes to direct, get in touch with us via text directly um but we'd love to hear comments or suggestions for future episodes things like that make sure you check out patreon um, it's patreon.com slash core consult rx um, we have all of our like more uh, lecture style um videos on there that have the powerpoint slides you can download as well um, and so i'm in the process of uploading um, more videos now especially now that i'm back teaching at the pa school that's in full swing and so i'm gonna be having a lot more lectures and updated slides and all that good stuff so as they learn you're gonna learn and uh you know, definitely support this i uh, appreciate the support that we've gotten on on that platform that helps us uh a lot when it comes to the, finding better equipment and all that good stuff. So very much appreciate you guys there and for sticking with us all this time. Um, We will catch you guys on the next time. Have a great one.